You are listening to a sermon from Gateway Foursquare Church in Campbell River, BC. We are so glad that you joined us today and trust that the Lord will speak a word directly to you as you listen. To learn more about Gateway, find out what's happening, or to give a gift online, check us out at www.gatewayfoursquare.ca. You are welcome to join us in person each week at 9 and 11 a.m. Now get ready. Here is this week's message. The Word of God, in my opinion, it today is quite timely. Have you ever maybe been doing your devotions, or maybe you're listening to a worship song, or perhaps you just open the Word of God and you're flipping through, and what you read, what you come to, thank you, uh, is, is just right. It's just what you needed, right? It's kind of like that was perfect for this moment and this instance in my life. Uh, and as I was kind of preparing for, for speaking today, I, I had this feeling kind of over and over again that I was like, God, you knew, you knew, right? I, I, I'm kind of working through like a bit of a, a, not like a loose schedule here in, in, in walking through the book of Romans. And so God kind of knew, I think, what was going to be going on in my life and beyond that, I think, in, in, our, in our church's life. And, and, and so I'm excited to be preaching through Romans chapter 5. Again, this is our seventh message through the book. Um, but I just want to say that all week long, my heart's just kind of being captured by this passage of scripture, perhaps you read ahead and your heart was captured too, but I genuinely am excited to open the word of God. Who here is also excited? Good, good. All right. Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Um, you can already open up to Romans chapter five, or maybe you use your cell phone to do that. If you're watching from home, uh, please pull out your Bibles as well. It's a little bit more difficult to put the scripture on the screen for those of you watching at home. So a Bible comes in really handy. Um, so I will have the scripture available, but I do think it's good practice to have our Bibles in hand somewhat regularly in our lives. I'd encourage you to not let a day go by without reading from it. And so can make your way there. Now, the way that I'm working through the book of Romans is verse at a time or a couple verses at a time. And there's a purpose for this. And that purpose is, is, is so that we can kind of understand it and digest it well. Kind of like a Subway sandwich. You wouldn't eat the whole foot-long Subway, Subway sandwich in one bite, right? It is, it's not doable, or at least for most of us, it's not doable, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you, take it in, you take it in bite-sized pieces, right? And so we're breaking down the fifth chapter here into bite-sized pieces on purpose so that we can understand more, that we can kind of taste it better in, in, in such a way. Uh, but before we read, I want to take a moment to pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we open your word today, God. We ask that you'd speak to us. We long to hear your voice first. There are all sorts of voices in each of our lives that are vying for our attention. Satan is one of them. God ourselves is another. Then we've got like our mother and our father and our friends and the media and all that kind of stuff. But God, this morning, we want to focus on you. We want to hear your voice loud and clear. So as we look to scripture, God, I pray that you'd wipe the distractions away from our minds, that we could focus in on what Paul's saying to the Romans and what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Romans chapter five, verse one. You ready? It says, Paul's speaking to the Romans. It says, therefore, since we have been justified, say that word with me, justified. Therefore, since we have been through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I made you say justified, but I think the key word is actually peace. What a wild concept, right? In the world that we live in, right? In the time that we live in, peace? 
with God through Jesus? This isn't a very hard verse to understand. He's basically saying that through Jesus, it is like we've never sinned. Remember, justified? And then what's the result? We then have peace. Peace with God. How? Through Jesus. By the way, this is interesting to me. The the Greek word here that's translated peace literally means to join. Isn't that interesting? And the idea uh, is is that something was previously separated. Do you remember when you were separated from God's love? Something was disconnected, and now it's being rejoined. It's come back together. And that describes the relationship that you and I have, if you are a Christian, if you've given your life to the Lord, that describes the relationship that you and I now have with God. You see, when God created man, there was a fellowship with man, but then sin entered the world, and and it sort of broke that fellowship. That fellowship was then broken, and there was a separation. And consequently, because of this separation, there was no peace between God and between man. Well, now through Jesus, that separation has been put to the side, and we can be reconnected with him. Isn't that an interesting concept? We can be now reconnected with him again, and because of that, there is now peace. Now, we're going to go back in time for a moment to Romans chapter 3. Remember in Romans chapter 3, 25, there's a part here where, where, where Paul says, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, if you can remember, we, we, we talked more in depth previously about what it meant to be the sacrifice of atonement. We talked about how God's wrath had been turned to the side and that now we can be rejoined with him. Wrath was the problem. Well, sin was the problem, and then wrath, by extension, was the problem. Do you understand that wrath is God's natural response to sin? That might not seem necessarily very fair, and I can understand that, um, but it's because God is holy, and sin violates his holiness, his natural response is wrath. And that wrath then separates us from God. And then Jesus came as the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus Christ turned away the wrath of God. And he he, he didn't turn it away in the sense of deflecting it. He absorbed it, right? He took the brunt of God's wrath for us. He took the punishment for us. We deserved to be punished. It was coming right for us. And then Jesus stood in the way. He stepped in the way and he absorbed the wrath of God. He consumed it and then God was satisfied. God was satisfied with what Jesus had done on the cross. And because God was satisfied with that sacrificial payment, there now is peace. We have peace with God. And by the way, the peace that's described here isn't a temporary sort of thing. It's an ongoing peace. It progresses. Here's another interesting note. You and I are not responsible for creating peace between us and God. But we can be responsible for eliminating it, for destroying it. You ever heard a Christian say, or perhaps you've said yourself, I just don't feel like I have peace with God. They'll believe Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but whatever it is in their life is causing them to feel a lacking of peace between them and God. Now, most of you might know this. One of the key indicators of knowing that there's an issue with your faith is if you're lacking peace. And I have no doubt in my mind that there's people in this room right now 
And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I just don't have peace with God. It's not there. I haven't been feeling that peace for a while. And it's often here that people might assume that maybe that person or maybe themselves might be living in some sort of place of unrepentant sin. Have you ever heard that before, that unrepentant sin can cause us to lack peace between us and God? That's a common discussion we, we have in church, and I understand that. But I actually want to come against that thought, and I challenge that thought a little bit. Before you assume that your issue is one of sin, for those of you that maybe feel like you're lacking peace between you and God, before you assume that the issue is, is one of sin, let me just say that I've learned over the years that sometimes people that don't have peace with God, it's because Satan is busy chirping in their ear, accusing them of past sins. Even though their sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, and we all have past sins, right? The question is, are you at peace with God even in the midst of of your past sins. If you've brought them to the cross and you know that you are forgiven for them, then there ought to be peace in your life, right? There'd be a direct correlation. And if there isn't peace in your life and you believe Jesus died for your sins, then chances are pretty good that the enemy is doing an effective job of chirping in your ear about those past sins, keeping them alive and keeping your focus on him in such a way that you then have no peace. And if that's you, and it's not because of unrepentant sin, it may just be that you're listening to the wrong voice. My Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does it still say that? I think it still says that. It does. <laughs> but we have to choose we have to choose to believe it in the face of the enemy who likes to challenge it, right? The enemy loves to remind us how big a scumbag we are. He'll point back to things you did BC before Christ to prove his point and attempt to weaken us, to shoot us down, to allow us to become accustomed to his voice. And then all of a sudden our peace is gone. It's like it was sucked out with a vacuum. So if you're lacking peace with God, it's likely related to sin, but it's not necessarily an unrepentant sin in your life. Perhaps you're listening to the wrong voice. By the way, if you do have unrepentant sin in your life that you've been choosing to ignore, choosing to not address, let me just say this, this loud and clear, that is a miserable way to live. I know firsthand what that's like. When you live in such a way, it will steal your vitality. It will steal your energy. It steals your joy. Have you ever heard someone sharing their testimony of coming to Christ? And they describe that there's this feeling of like a weight lifted off of them, right? But as they come to the Lord and as they give their life to him, perhaps this is you. And you're like, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. There's a weight lifted off of them coming to Christ for the first time. You see, peace being restored is a wonderful thing. But on the contrary, it is a miserable thing to live under the burden of the lack of peace. This is one of the things I actually pray for when someone is caught in sin and they refuse to repent. I'll actually pray. I'll say, God, make them miserable. <laughs> Not to be mean, but the last thing I would want is for someone to be kind of walking through life, happy-go-lucky, just waltzing through life, living in sin. God, make them miserable. Let them recognize they're lacking peace with you. Let it become very apparent to them. 
that they need to be right with you. Because I know in the bottom of my heart, like many of you know this morning, how wonderful it is to be restored. But we need to come before God. We need to seek his forgiveness. And we need to believe in his word for our lives. Our peace can be restored. I know that was a little bit of a tangent, but I just felt in my heart as the word peace kind of came across the text there in the first verse that I need to talk about that a little bit. I long for us to experience God's peace. Now, now in verse 2, Paul begins to talk about the benefits of the cross. And I'll read it here. Verse 2 says, Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I find it so interesting here that he says we have gained access in, or access by faith into grace. See, the word access here means, a, here is, is describing a privilege of approach. It literally describes the privilege of kind of talking to a high-ranking official. For example, maybe, maybe you um, have, have access to somebody like the mayor, and you can just give them a call or text them, right? Or maybe someone says, like, you know what, I have the president's ear. In 10 minutes, I can talk to the president. It might take you a year to talk to them or a lifetime to talk to them, but I can talk to them in 10 minutes. That's privilege of approach. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. When he says, you and I have privilege or access to grace. We have complete access to favor of God. Think about that for a second. Isn't that amazing? We have completely free access to the grace of God. You and I, right here, right now. And there's nothing standing in the way. In fact, the only thing that really can be standing in the way is ourselves. We can get in the way of that. But I want to say to you, no matter what you're going through in your life right now, today, you have the same access to God's favor as anyone else. So use it. Take advantage of it. The second part of the verse, you'll notice Paul says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is a future benefit that Paul is talking about here relating to the power of the cross. You see, even though we fall short, don't we ever fall short. Even though we fall short of the glory of God, we have hope. In fact, we can actually boast in the hope that we will one day share in the glory of God. See, I think if we fully understand this, we'd probably be jumping up and down like touchdown time. We scored, we won the Grey Cup, right? If we fully understand this, I think it would change our attitudes completely. Paul says we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. And it's our loss if we forget how incredible the glory of God is. Hope in the glory of God has to do with Christ's return. We don't think about that very much, do we? We tend to think about things like our next vacation, right? Or what's happening next week, or maybe even a little bit quicker, what am I going to eat after church, <laughs> right? What's in the fridge, <laughs> right? We can get so stuck on temporary things or things that are close by. But you see, the early believers here were in the habit of talking regularly about their hope. And I find this so interesting. I'll be honest with you. One of the reasons they talked about their hope that is to come is because life wasn't very hopeful for them at that time. Life was pretty hard for the early believers. And I think we might be heading there as Christians in our current society. I don't necessarily know, but I think things are going to get a little bit more challenging, maybe a lot more challenging. I think things are going to continue to get more challenging for believers. And as they get more challenging for believers, I would actually suspect 
that we're gonna talk a lot more about our hope for glory than we are about our hope in our present existence. You see, life's challenges have a way of sort of shifting our focus on what's present. And Paul actually talks about this in verse three. Check it out. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. What a thought. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is being poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice the progression here. Suffering brings perseverance. Perseverance produces character. By the way, the, the Greek word for character here literally means proof. Do you know that hardship does that? It proves your character. Hardship doesn't necessarily guarantee good character, does it? But it will prove your character one way or another. It will either prove the nastiness that's inside of you, or it can prove the godliness inside of you. It's depending on what you do with those sufferings. It's depending on what you do with your hardships. If you bring them before the Lord and you say, God, use these in me, make me like you, well, then it produces godly character. But if you don't, guess what hardship does? It causes bitterness. It produces hardness. Have you ever met someone that just comes off hard? Right? They just come off as bitter and difficult. They didn't start that way. They grew hard because they went through all these difficulties and they didn't give them to the Lord. They didn't trust them unto the Lord. And each time something challenging came along and it sort of just hit them in the chest, it hardened them. It caused bitterness in them. It caused anger. Have you ever noticed, or perhaps you notice regularly, how increasingly angry people are in our culture today? People seem mad, don't they? And there's so much violence to follow. Violence in the home, violence in our workplace, violence in public places, violence nation versus nation. It seems like our world is a ready audience for violence and that anger is the lens through which everyone seems to see the world. Anger is an issue and it seems that people around are very angry. But as Christians, we have a whole different way of living, don't we? We have a whole different way of viewing hardship and difficulty. We recognize that when we give it to God, it actually benefits us. What an interesting concept. Rather than causing us to become bitter, we become better. And we realize that God is doing a work in us to shape us more into the image of his son through our hardship. That's why James says, brothers, when you go through many trials, rejoice. Rejoice. And then thousands of years later, we read these letters and we're thinking, uh, I'm good. I don't feel like celebrating my hardships. You're crazy, James. You're crazy, Paul. What in the world are you guys thinking? Right? Rejoice when life's tough. Rejoice when life's hard. You see, both Paul and James understood that Christians are formed into the image of Jesus as we bring our hardships before God. When we say, God, I need you. I give you these things. I entrust these things to you. You know who else understood this? Job. Job also understood the process of the proving ground of hardship. He understand how it proved a person. Can I show you guys something from the book of Job? Chapter 23, verse 10. Job says, He knows the way that I take, 
When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Can you read that with me? He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. This is a statement of faith. And my question to you is, are you being refined by your hardships? Do you believe that your hardships are gonna produce in you gold and form you into the image of Jesus? This really points back to our faith. You see, Job is speaking through the lens of hope. He's not speaking through the lens of bitterness. He's not speaking through the lens of of hardship, right, or anger. He's speaking through the lens of hope. What lens are you looking through in your life? Right, just by like quick show of hands, here by like just looking at your past like month of your life, not like all eternity through the past month of your life, who here's dealing with at least one kind of major hardship? What lens are you looking through? Is it the one of anger? Is it the one of bitterness? Is it the one that says, woe is me? Or is it one of hope? Hope for the future. Life is so hard right now, but I will come forth as gold. Isn't it interesting that if you look at the progress here in Romans 5, that suffering produces perseverance, which then produces character that ends up producing hope. See, here's the thing. When the world suffers, they become hopeless. When you and I suffer, we gain hope. Isn't that weird? It seems like the kingdom of God is upside down from the kingdom of the world, that is. See, where the world becomes hopeless and suffering, we actually grow in our hope through our suffering. Let me say that again. Where the world becomes hopeless in suffering, we actually grow in hope through our suffering. But only when we commit those things to the Lord. Suffering often leads people, leaves people feeling hopeless, but as believers, it can actually generate in us hope in our lives. Verse six says, you see, at just the right time, just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Paul here is trying to get us to see the incredible love of God. He wants us to know that when Christ died, it was while we were still powerless. Verse 7, he, he contrasts here for the sake of argument. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. See, Paul here is, is emphasizing the unlikeliness of someone being willing to give their life for someone who is righteous or who is good. And then there's us. We're not, we're not even close, are we? As previously described in earlier chapters of Romans, we are unworthy, wrath-deserving, sin-filled people. We're not righteous, are we? Not even a little bit good. Check out what Paul says in verse eight. But God, I love that, but But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, not while we were making a couple good decisions, not while we were like in the process of being purified, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul's trying to describe here is that we were at our absolute worst condition, totally helpless and without any worth on our own. Christ then came and he died for us. Aren't you glad that God didn't wait around until we were worthy before he gave himself? 
He did it when we were at our absolute peak of worstness. It's probably not a word. (laughs) Here's Paul's conclusion to that thought. He says, since we have, verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Paul's like, God loved you when you were a sinner, but now you've been justified. It's amazing to me that people can accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, but then they're waiting for the sword to kind of cut their head off at the wrong move, right? People can be like, yeah, I'm saved, but then they're kind of like, you know, I don't want to cause any trouble. I don't want to do anything wrong. What's going to happen if I sinned? Oh, I did that terrible thing. What's happening, right? And we worry and we worry and we worry as Christians. And Paul's like, wait a second, He saved you when you were nothing, but now you are the apple of his eye. You are precious in his sight. You are now his son. You are now his daughter. You are a joint heir with Christ. He sees Jesus in you. You think he's gonna hold back now? No way. Since we've been justified, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? See, God's love for you is absolutely wild. And we can get this so messed up in our thinking, can't we? Verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, what a thought, for for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have you been reconciled? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life, through Jesus? Who saves their enemies, by the way? Who does that? People kill their enemies when given the opportunity. People mock their enemies when given the opportunity. Who does good things for their enemy? God does. He saw you and I while we were still enemies, and he saved us. He changed our hearts, and now we are his children. He loves us. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is amazing. And now while Paul is using this this sort of contrast for illustration, he's gonna go on and he's going to contrast the result of Adam's life. Adam, like at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, he's gonna contrast the result of Adam's life versus the result of Jesus' ministry on earth. And I'll warn you, Paul's a little bit all over the place in his explanation here but we're in chapter five, so you're probably used to it. (laughs) Let's read on. (laughs) Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And Paul doesn't really finish his sentence here. He sort of interrupts himself mid-thought. But what he's saying here is that Adam was a representative of mankind. And because of, of, of Adam's sin, all mankind was then plunged into sin because of Adam. By the way, have you ever been a little bit annoyed at Adam? Maybe you've thought like, dude, why'd you have to mess it up for all of us, right? It's kind of like when you're in school and there's the one kid that's like making a little bit too much noise and you all get in trouble, right? And you're like, dude, why'd you have to do that? Let me just say this. It would be frankly unjust of God to punish us for Adam's sin. The fact of the matter is the Bible says that we have all sinned in Adam. 
You see, Adam had the perfect circumstance, didn't he? God set up the perfect situation to succeed. But Adam failed miserably, and you and I failed in him. His failure is our failure because he is our representative. And, and if you think you would have done a better job, I can pretty much guarantee you wouldn't have. And neither would I. It's kind of arrogant of us to think we would have done better, considering just how much we've sinned in the past 48 hours. And so he says, death then came to all people because all have sinned. We're in verse 13 now. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. In other words, from the time of Adam up to the time of Moses, because that's when the law was introduced. But sin was not charged against anyone's account where there was no law. Interesting. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. If you can remember earlier in a previous chapter of Romans, Paul said that law brings death. The law brings death. Do you remember that part? It does. The law kills. The law shows us that we are unworthy. It reveals our sin. It reveals that we are deserving of wrath. But, but the law wasn't written at the time of Adam. And Paul says, nevertheless death, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So sin still had its effect with or without the law. The law wasn't the differentiator. Sin was. And he ends by saying, Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Who is the one to come? Jesus. And here, here Paul's similarity by contrast um, similar in the sense that they're both a representative of humankind, but contrasting in what they brought, Adam versus Jesus. Adam brought death, and Jesus brought life. Check it out, verse 15. But the gift, the gift being forgiveness through Jesus, the gift is not like the trespass. Let me say that again. The gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? See, here's the first contrast that Paul brings out. He reminds us here that the result of the cross is not like the result of the Garden of Eden. Jesus didn't simply reverse what Adam did. And I get that it sort of seems like it, right? In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we were made alive again. But that's not exactly what Paul's saying here. What he's actually saying in verse 15 is what Adam did resulted in death, but what Jesus did was better. See, the gift is not like the trespass. It was actually better. It abounded more. This is sort of a theological thing we're dealing with here. And let me just say it this way. The work of God on the cross is better than the work of Adam in the garden. This is the gift of life that we've been given. It's greater than the penalty of death that we've received through Adam. Verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the results of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought, and brought condemnation. That's what Adam brought, condemnation. But the gift, forgiveness, followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in, the, in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Do you see kind of the similarity by contrast that's happening here? We'll keep reading in verse 18. 
Consequently, just as one trespass did resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For justice through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. See, the law, the law revealed our sin. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. See, guys, this is where the more comes into play. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross simply to do away with what Adam did. He came and then grace abounded more. What he did was greater, far greater than what Adam did. Verse 21 to close. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I've had many people ask me over the years, they'll say, did God know that we were gonna fall into sin? Of course. Then they'll say, if God knew what was gonna happen, why did he let it happen? Perhaps you've asked this question before, and I think it's a fair one. Well, it's here in these verses that I think that we get an important part of the answer. The part of the answer I'm referring to is that God has received more glory and man has received more blessing through Jesus' sacrifice than if sin had never happened at all. We're actually better off in Christ than if we'd only ever followed an unfallen, an unfallen Adam and Eve. Does that make sense? If Adam had never sinned, sure, he would have continued to live on earth, but he wouldn't have had the blessings that you and I have, the promise of heaven. He wouldn't have known what it's like to be a redeemed child of God. We are joint heirs with Christ. Those things came as a result of the cross, and the cross came as a result of our sin. God had you in mind all along. I want to close today by reminding you that when you walk out those doors in the back of this church today, and I don't say this to depress you, the world is just as lost and just as ugly as before you walked in. I don't think that I'm the only one that's disturbed by the havoc in the world. It seems like a new war breaks out every six months. The cost of everything you need in life has doubled in the past four years. People are meaner. Our leaders aren't leading us. Homelessness and drug abuse is on the rise in the city that we love. Mental health problems or at an all-time high, it feels like the world's burning in front of our eyes. Who else has been discouraged by the state of the world? I'm gonna call our worship and prayer team forward. On, on Tuesday afternoons, we have a staff meeting here at the church. And before the staff meeting, I'll take my time and I'll write out like an agenda as to what we're gonna go through in our staff meeting. Right, and I'll think of the, all the important things that are happening in our church, and then we'll talk about those things, we'll pray into those things, and we'll make decisions, and we'll decide how we're going to lead. But about 10 minutes into our discussion, we addressed an issue that kind of caught each of our attention, and it kind of sidelined everything that I'd planned to talk about. You ever had that, when you have like a plan, and then it just isn't going as intended? I was okay with it. We kind of had this discussion that church felt a little heavier lately. We had this discussion that it seemed like it was more difficult for us to peace, and we sort of diagnosed the situation by saying that it seems that we're lacking 
peace. So my question to you is, have you been lacking peace? Has that been something that's happening in your life? In a world full of trouble, both far from home and close to home, it became apparent to us that we needed to be encouraged. And as your pastor today, my hope for you is that you would hope in Jesus. That's my hope. That's what I long for. So let me take your attention back to verses three to five of chapter five. It says, we glory in our sufferings. Remember Job saying, be turned into gold. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, I know that things are hard for many of you. And I do not want to minimize the hardness, the hard reality that we're all facing. But I do want to highlight that we certainly can persevere. And through our perseverance, we will develop character, godly character. And through our character, we will then develop hope. And who is our hope? Jesus. If you've got something big, bad, and ugly in your life that is weighing you down, I challenge you today to challenge that thought, to challenge that big thing, to challenge that bad thing, to challenge that ugly thing, to take time before the Lord to pray. We've, we've literally taken the front row of chairs out of here to widen the front like space just for ministry. We're longing for people to kind of take the things that are hard in your life, that are causing you trouble, that are causing your pain, and to take them before the Lord and say, God, I need you. Lord, I need you. God, I long for you to help me with this issue. I need to be encouraged. Church, would you stand with me, please? In, in closing today, I'm gonna read a passage of scripture that gripped my heart in prayer this week. Psalm 150, Shauna read it earlier. I'm going to ask, would you be willing to raise your hands in a posture of praise? And would you read this with me? Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In the face of our troubles... God is good. In the face of our troubles, let's praise God like never before. Let there be nothing holding you back from praising him with all your heart. Satan has no hold in this place. Let's worship the King of Kings. Thanks for joining us today. We trust that the Lord has something great in store for you. Do you have a question or a prayer request? Send an email to info at gatewayfoursquare.ca or find us on Facebook at GatewayCR. Don't forget we gather each Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. at 403 Fifth Avenue here in beautiful Campbell River. Have a great day.